All right, we are live from Occupy City Hall. This is the Rockford reading segment. We was having some issues with the headphones, and they back got one ear back working. Uh, I'm here today with, or tonight, I should say, or this morning, uh, with Kay, a fellow member of the May 30th Alliance. And what we are embarking on today uh, is a, a new chapter, uh, metaphorically and literally, uh, in the May 30th Alliance, uh, and that is uh, spreading the Rockford reading segment, which we have uh, been doing on Facebook and on, excuse me, sorry about that, it's a lot of, which we have been doing on Facebook and on Instagram, spreading it to our podcast platform. Uh, and the book that we are beginning with is The End of Policing by Alex S. Vitale. Uh, and again, we are the May 30th Alliance is a direct action organization located in Rockford, Illinois, dedicated to the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. Uh, and the end of policing is a critical uh, piece of literature in that struggle. And one of the things that we have been doing is uh, reading literature and then cross-referencing how the uh, issues presented in the literature correlate to the issues that we are facing in 2021 in Winnebago County with the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice uh, and how tactics and ideology and philosophies uh, that are uh, presented in this in literature, pieces of literature can be uh, uh, used as assistance in our struggle. And so one of the things we do is we go through and we read. And as we read, we interject with how the issues or the things being presented, again, correlate uh, specifically with Rockford, Illinois. So uh, me and Kay are going to do that. Uh, this is we are, we are the first uh, two people to embark on this, uh, basically the co reading uh, of the co Rockford reading. And so we're going to work out the kinks and. Uh, we're going to start with chapter one, the limits of police reform. And I think what we'll do is I'll, I'll read some. And then if Kay at, at a moment wants to interject, he'll just go ahead, tap me. I'll pass the mic to him. Uh, if I have a question for Kay or, uh, a statement, uh, for, uh, that correlates to the things I'll just interject and we'll, we'll find the flow of this. Okay. Chapter one, the limits of police reform. Uh, this is the end of policing. Tamir Rice and John Crawford were both shot to death in Ohio because an officer's first instinct was to shoot. Anthony Hill, outside Atlanta, Antonio Zambrano, Montez in Pascal, California, and Jason Harris in Dallas were all shot to death by police who misunderstood their mental illness. Oscar Grant in Oakland, Akai Gurley in Brooklyn, and Eric, Hels and Eric Harris in Tulsa were all shot, quote, by mistake, end quote, because officers didn't use enough care in handling their weapons. North Charleston, South Carolina, police officer Michael Slager shot Walter Scott in the back for fleeing a traffic stop and potential arrest for missed child support, then planted evidence on him as part of a cover-up, which was backed up by other officers. On Staten Island, Eric Garner was killed in part because of an overly aggressive police response to his allegedly selling loose cigarettes. The recent killings of so many unarmed black men by police in so many different circumstances have pushed the issue of police reform onto the national agenda in a way not seen in over a generation. Is there an explosive increase in police violence? There is no question that American police use their weapons more than police in any other developed democracy. Unfortunately, we don't have fully accurate information about the number or nature of homicides at the hands of police. Despite a 2006 law requiring the reporting of this information, we authorized in 2014, many police departments do not comply. 
Researchers have had to rely on independent information such as local news stories to cobble together numbers. One effort by The Guardian and Washington Post documented 1,100 deaths in 2014, 991 in 2015, and 1,080 in 2016. Fewer than in the 1960s and 1970s, but still far too many. African Americans are disproportionately victims of police shootings. Black teens are up to 21 times more likely than white teens to be killed by police. Though these rates are often proportional to the race of gun to the race of gun offenders and shooting victims more broadly. Racial profiling remains widespread and many communities of color experience invasive and disrespectful policing. The recent cases of Ferguson and North Charleston are hardly outliers. Blacks and Latinos are overwhelmingly the targets of low-level police interactions, from traffic tickets to searches to arrests for minor infractions, and frequently report being treated in a hostile and degrading manner despite having done nothing wrong. In New York City, 80 to 90 percent of those targeted for such interactions are people of color. Uh, okay, and then that brings us to, a, a, we're on page two of uh, the end of policing. Uh, the chapter is called The Limits of Police Reform. And so I want to sort of speak on uh, some of the issues that have been, uh, or some of the things that have been presented, uh, excuse me, some of the information that has been presented up to this point. Uh, when they speak on, in the, in the opening of this paragraph, in the opening of the chapter, in the opening paragraph, uh, when they speak on the people who are shot to death by the police because of their mental illness being misunderstood. Uh, that is something that uh, specifically. My fault, this damn, my fault, y'all, this damn court. That is something that specifically uh, can, uh, relates to Rockford, Illinois. Carrie uh, Blake was murdered and shot to death by the Rockford Police Department because his mental illness was not understood. Logan Bell was murdered and shot to death by the Rockford Police Department because his mental illness was not understood. Uh, uh, Mark Barmore uh, was spoken about having a mental uh, uh, being in a mental health crisis when he was murdered and killed by police because of his mental health issue being misunderstood. Uh, and so I think that uh, that 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 is uh, the issue of misunderstanding mental health uh, is something that has manifested itself here uh, locally as well. Uh, that's you. You out of here? All right, be safe, bro. Love you, bro. For real, man. Be safe out here, dog. We gonna holla at you, man. We gonna be in tune with you. Uh, and then when it speaks about uh, people being shot by mistake, even though uh, we don't have a, a specific one here where someone was uh, said to have been shot by mistake, uh, we have seen recently, excuse me, a Brooklyn Center where Dante Wright was murdered, uh, where the uh, a white woman police officer claimed she thought she had her taser uh, when she shot Dante Wright. And so this book uh, was written, I believe, in uh, 2014. 2013, 2014. Uh, but again, the issues that are being presented are still very relevant and still very prevalent in our society. Uh, and not just the society as a whole or in general, but specifically uh, in, right here in Rockford, Illinois and in Winnebago County. Uh, 
Uh, and then again, when the question is asked, is there an explosive increase in police violence? Uh, here, uh, we have seen uh, that there is an average amount of police violence that exists, and sometimes it ebbs and flows, but it averages out to what is uh, two in-custody deaths or officer-involved shootings taking place a year. And now to get to that average, it means that there are some years that there are more than that that take place, uh, and it also means that some years there, there may be less as well. Uh, we sit here in 2021 with Denzel Duvant being assaulted and beat, and that's an act of uh, it was not an in-custody death or officer-involved shooting, but it's an act of police terrorism. Uh, Faustin Guaytigo being murdered, Jose Gonzalez Jr. being shot, and then Raymond Jackson uh, dying in a high-speed pursuit. Uh, and so we see how, uh, is there an explosive increase in Rockford, Illinois? Uh, no, there may not be specifically right now an explosive increase, uh, but there is a steady uh, uh, amount of, this, uh, of these things happening. Uh, and then... Uh, I think also it's important to point out uh, where they see where they speak on the law requiring the reporting of this information, but many police departments not complying with the law. And again, that points out the importance of why we have to change the consciousness of the society uh, and not simply just rely on changing legislation or laws or policy, uh, because we have seen how when policies change and legislation is changed, but thought patterns and consciousness isn't changed, that legislation and policy is not abided by. Uh, and then when they speak on, in 2014, 1,100 deaths. Uh, in, in 2015, 991 deaths. And 1,080 in 2016. These are all fatalities uh, by police department, by the institution of policing in this uh, country. Uh, and then again, when it comes to this next paragraph, and it speaks about African Americans disproportionately being the victims of police shootings, uh, we have 16 memorials up on Say Their Name Square of people who were uh, either died in custody of uh, law enforcement or were sh uh, murdered and shot by law enforcement uh, and 14 excuse me 13 of them are black uh, one is a Mexican uh, one is Mexican and uh, or Latino uh, and then the other two are white and so that is something that also is very true here uh, black people are disproportionately affected by this issue uh, in Rockford Illinois as well uh, and then they go to racial profiling uh, which is a, a microaggression as opposed to these police lynchings which are macroaggressions aggressions uh, but the both those microaggressions and macroaggressions are disproportionately uh, uh, felt by people of color uh, do you have anything with those uh, with those uh, sort of first paragraphs that you wanted to add there I guess what I'll end uh, I'll let you add anything that you have but then what I would ask you too is uh, as we as we have gone through and we have uh, dealt with some of these issues uh, with mental health uh, and policing uh, disproportionate uh, police terrorism being done to uh, people of color uh, and uh, steady police terrorism happening uh, in the in the city of uh, Rockford. Uh, what has been uh, some of your uh, responses to witnessing these things firsthand as you have in this struggle that's taken place? Well, I, I wanted to make a just to make a statement in regards to the uh, the point that you made where it said that it was a mandate where the police departments had to report the information but they of their own free will said we are not going to so you have those that are <laughs> that take an oath to uphold the law to have the law staring them in the face and then they make a conscious decision to publicly say I don't think so. I'm not going to do it 
But yet, their job, they're, they're sworn to take an oath to uphold the law, but yet, in regards to the law, and them reporting homicides, that was specifically homicides, yes. that they said, we're, we're not going to do it. And at multiple, I believe it was on a national level, yes. you say, on a national level, where they're, they're saying, we, we are not going to report how many homicides we have on a year-to-year basis. So what we're getting is an estimate without specifics. And I just thought that was ironic. There's a lot of irony there with, you know, the the, the whole marketability of protect and serve and that just the persona and the look of we are here to 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 make sure that justice is served and to uphold the law. Well, okay, now the law is asking uh, you to do ask for, exactly the law is asking you to do something. Well, the law is demanding that you do something so that they have they have specific statistics to go off of for future reference. And the answer and the pushback is no, no. I just thought that was uh, uh, there's a lot of irony there. Now, as far as me, my firsthand experience, as far as what I've seen, um, I've definitely seen a very low tolerance for any mental illness. And and I will I will also say this because I think this is timely as well. In the moment of high stress, because I I don't think this gets enough attention. In the moment of high stress. And either having a baton, having a visual of an officer with a baton, or pepper spray, or just the, them having their gloves on, knowing that they have a gun. I the, the just the trauma from the PTSD of of people that I saw this is eyewitness is that you know secondhand uh, story just the PTSD that I saw I saw people with the terror that had that has left an impact on their lives that goes un unspoken as far as it's not it's not that's not a tangible that gets written in a police report that this person may not have slept for three days or this person lost their job because they're not functioning the way that they they used to and I'm using examples of of things that people told me that their arrest being so violent just the arrest itself being so violent that they there were people telling me that I wasn't quite myself not that they're saying they were acting crazy. The the anxiety and the and the emotions had them act differently than they would under a calm situation. Right. So I can see how dangerous that becomes for an officer to see somebody whose whose actual nature is calm. That when confronted with the physicality of an officer wrenching their 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 wrist. Or throwing their arm behind their back, where you see, based on physi- the the physiology of their of the of the skeleton, they the arm can only go back so far. But you see it it being hyperextended. 
deliberately hyperextended to to cause a, a flinch or a reaction, and then you can you can see the uh, the uh, I don't know the best word to use for this, but when a person starts to hyperventilate or when the when the when the anxiety builds based on the fear. To see the officer manipulate the fear to justify, it's a feedback loop. To see the officer administer fear so that the whole moment is, they are operating in a level of fear. And then they're using that fear as a, to say that that's the justification of the level of trauma and force that they're using. When in fact they're the ones inflicting it, right, right. And I, I think that's uh, granted. You were talking specifically about certain people with mental illness. In the moment of uh, of seeing me, even witnessing excessive force, I saw people their just their human nature come out where they they weren't trying to be combative with the officer. They they clicked into a, a natural survival mode. Right. I saw them when their arms were being wrenched, and I saw them trying to scoot their bodies to sit comfortably. Stop resisting. This is what this is what I'm hearing. Right. But let's 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 make sure we stay here. Let's let's but, get back to the you know because it'll come a time where that's okay. About that but as far as mental illness, well, this is the I, just to bounce this off of you. In the moment of heavy crisis, when you're not quite in your in your same mindset, can that, in a sense, be interpreted as not not an illness? But can that be interpreted as, as a person not quite being uh, themselves? Well, I think that I think that the important part of the mental illness aspect is this. And again, that's what we're reading this one specifically for. And this chapter is speaking about the limits of police reform is that policing can't be uh, used for mental health uh, because they are violence workers that no matter what type of. Uh, of, of theory or, or, or possibilities we come up with is going to be trying to put a, uh, a square uh, key through a uh, triangle hole, uh, as you could, as you say. You know, I'm not using that metaphor the perfect way, uh, but it'll always be that because they're there because police officers come uh, with the number one instrument they have being violence, and when somebody is having a mental health crisis, uh, the last thing that you want to do is to add the specter of violence to that because then that only uh, 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 that only uh, serves to add uh, to the danger of the situation of the mental health crisis when you uh, insert somebody in there whose uh, job it is to use right. violence to get to a certain end. Case, I don't you know, know. Familiar with the case where the lady was walking down the street. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. But let's uh, let's let's keep on let's keep on moving through here so that way we can keep on try to get touch as many of these things as possible. Uh, uh, let's see. Okay. <clears throat> This form of policing is based on a mindset that people of color commit more crimes and therefore must be subjected to harsher police tactics. Police argue that residents in high crime communities often demand police action. What is left out is that these communities also ask for better schools, parks, libraries and jobs. But these services are rarely provided. 
They lack the political power to obtain real services. And reality is that middle class and wealthy white communities will put a stop to the constant harassment and humiliation meted out by police and communities of color, no matter the crime rate. Those who question the police or their authority are frequently subjected to verbal threats and physical attacks. In 2012, young Harlem resident Alvin Cruz, who had been repeatedly stopped and searched by police without justification, taped an encounter with police in which he questioned the reason for the stop. In response, the police officer cursed at him, twisted his arm behind his back and said, quote, dude, I'm going to break your fucking arm. Then I'm going to punch you in the fucking face, end quote. Even wealthy and more powerful people of color are not immune. In 2009, Harvard professor and PBS personality Henry Louis Gates Jr. was arrested by Cambridge police in his own home. He had lost his keys and a neighbor had called the police to report a break in. The incident prompted President Obama to state, quote, I think it's fair to say, number one, any of us would be pretty angry. Number two that the Cambridge police acted stupidly in arresting somebody when there was already proof that they were in their own home. And number three, what I think we know separate and apart from this incident is that there's a long history in this country of African-Americans and Latinos being stopped by law enforcement disproportionately, end quote. Part of the problem stems from a, quote, warrior mentality, end quote. Police often think of themselves as soldiers in a battle with the public rather than guardians of public safety that they are provided with tanks and other military-grade weapons, that many are military veterans, and that militarized units like Special Weapons and Tactics, SWAT, proliferated during the 1980s war on drugs and post-9-11 war on terror, only fuels this perception, as well as a belief that entire communities are disorderly, dangerous, suspicious, and ultimately criminal. When this happens, police are too quick to use force. Excessive use of force, however, is just the tip of the iceberg of over-policing. There are currently more than 2 million Americans in prison or jail and another 4 million on probation or parole. Many have lost the right to vote. Most will have severe difficulties in finding work upon release and will never recover from the lost earnings and work experience. Many have had their ties to their families irrevocably damaged and have been driven into more serious and violent criminality. Despite numerous well-documented cases of false arrest and convictions, the vast majority of these arrests and convictions have been conducted lawfully and according to proper procedure, but their effects on individuals and communities are incredibly destructive. Uh, and then that gets us into a, a next portion of this uh, chapter, which is called Reforms. Uh, but before we move on to that, let's uh, have some dialogue about the uh paragraphs that we just read through uh and so i would uh one of the first things i would say is again Kay was just pointing this out in the uh use of uh, the type of use of force that is uh done when it uh twisting somebody's arm and forcing them uh to feel in fear of a situation which then gets them uh which then forces that which forces a what happens is, you know, as Kay was speaking, a police officer enters the situation. They implement fear into the situation because fear is one of their uh, tactics and instruments that they use. Uh, that fear then causes a person to act, uh, uh, may cause a person to act out of ration uh, or, or irrational because of the fact that they are in fear. And then the police officer uses that uh, reaction to the fear that they are purposefully implementing to then claim fear themselves and then to further perpetuate the violence and excessive force that is being used, uh, which is, uh, again, perfectly uh, uh, categorized 
with uh, Alvin Cruz's experience. And it's obvious that he was in fear, and that was the reason that he even had a camera rolling in the first place. And you've seen that his fear was justified uh, by this police officer uh, uh, wrenching his arm and uh, causing him to be in physical trauma. And also, one of the things that is not highlighted enough is the psychological trauma that this physical uh, damage does. I'm sure that Alvin Cruz uh, was uh, highly uh, psychologically traumatized uh, by being threatened to have his arm broken by somebody who's supposed to be protecting and serving him. Uh, and then the same thing with uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. One of the uh, things that we're reminded of is that you cannot buy yourself. You cannot buy liberation. You cannot buy freedom. Uh, and so even and you can and you cannot out. You cannot class your way out of being black. And so even though Henry Louis Gates Jr. may not have the same experience that the masses of black people have. When it comes to the police uh, on a regular basis, because maybe he's escaped the community or escaped that poverty or uh, he, he's a more known person. So he doesn't have these same experiences with police. Uh, there's black. You are still black in this society uh, and you can be reminded of that at any moment. And that was what ha what was happened to Henry Louis Gates Jr. Uh, when he was arrested for doing nothing other than being black and existing Uh and uh, most and black people have multiples of black people, masses of black people have that experience of doing nothing wrong other than just existing and being black in a space. Uh, and that end up uh, leaving you to be criminalized. Uh, and again, that's something that we've experienced here uh, uh, to point out more specifically at the city market protest that took place last year. There was a black reporter who was denied entry in the city market because they believed that he was a protester simply because he was black and he was not allowed entry into city market until a white man was able to basically vouch for him. Uh, and so those are some of the things that are uh, come to my mind when we hear that. Uh, also, when we they, they spoke about the two million people in prison, but the other four million people on probation or parole. Uh, and I think that that is just as much of a problem that does not get spoken about is the cyber prisons that people in, uh, enter into. Besides just the physical prisons that they are in, the open air prisons, the probations and paroles, the court supervisions, all of these things that are designed to keep people in the system and to not let them uh, uh go free uh and so i will i'm going to pass it to Kay to speak on uh uh some of the thoughts that he has uh after reading about alvin cruz's experience with the police department being having excessive force used against him after hearing about henry lewis gates jr's experience with the cambridge police uh being arrested in his own home uh, uh after losing his keys and then speaking about the two million people in prison and uh, other four million on probation Well, I mean, uh, because it's 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 undeniable that there's a, a financial commo component to this. It goes without saying that there's a that there's it, it's a numbers game involved. So you're still dealing with bodies, and the primary focus is not justice. It's not it's, it's the 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 push is not to render justice. It is a quarter, a quarter-based system, and America has tons of uh, for-profit private prisons all over America. So, for someone to 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 for someone to receive the true justice necessary is few and far between. Uh, 
just on a national level, the 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 presumptiveness, I, th- I think it is it must be that's something that 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 should be more vocal. That's something that that should be a, a topic for many conversations uh, in regards to the assumptiveness of of uh, that that society places. Uh, well, the I, I don't want to say society, society as a whole, but to make it relevant to the conversation that the, the officers uh, place on uh, young black males or just people in general, it's 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 what's literally happening is the 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 mind state the, the state of mind that the officers in at that moment is going to help is going to aid his decisions upon confrontation and that's that's one of the I, I think one of the largest issues that 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 can never be understated the officer's thinking his perception is going to dictate is going to have an over overarching uh, impact and dictate the flow of the moment uh when there is confrontation so it's not. It's not. It, it, basically, the simplest way I can say it is: there's, there's never truly an organic uh, uh, interaction between an officer and a person. It is. There is a motivation. There is an energy that the officer always brings in that moment, and there's there's a general response. Like, let's say if it's if someone was arrested, is the first time they've ever been arrested. There's a level of anxiety they're going to have, or or with the twisting of the arm, or the the an excessiveness based on a perception that it's it's triggering a scenario and actually creating a scenario that otherwise should be, for all intents and purposes, it should be organic, but yet it's not. <clears throat> And then that gets us to, again, we're uh, uh, reading the end of policing, uh, first chapter, the limits of police reform. Uh, and now we're entering another segment in that chapter uh, entitled reforms. <clears throat> any effort to make policing more, excuse me, any effort to make policing more just must address the problems of excessive force. Excuse me, I'm reading that wrong. Any effort to make policing more just must address the problems of excessive force over policing and disrespect for the public. Much of the public debate has focused on new and enhanced training, diversifying the police and embracing community policing and strategies for reform, along with enhanced accountability measures. However, most of these reforms fail to deal with the fundamental problems inherent to policing. And now I want people to, uh, and again, really pay attention to all of this, but when people make the argument for reform, an argument which we must uh, combat. We must uh, advocate for revolution and not reform. We must understand what reform truly is. These are all the reasons in which uh, reformation cannot be uh, what we aspire to and revolution must be what we respi- aspire to. OK, so training. <clears throat> the videotape death of Eric Garner for allegedly selling loose cigarettes immediately spurred calls for additional training of officers and how to use force in making arrests. Officers were accused of using a prohibited chokehold and of failing to respond to his pleas that he couldn't breathe. In response, 
Mayor Bill de Blasio and Police Commissioner William Braddon announced that all New York Police Department officers would undergo additional use of force training so that they could make arrests in the future in ways that were less likely to result in serious injury, as well as training and methods to de-escalate conflicts and more effectively communicate with the public. Such training ignores two important factors in Garner's death. The first is the officer's casual disregard for his well-being, ignoring his cries of, quote, I can't breathe, end quote, and their seeming indifferent reaction to his near lifelessness while awaiting an ambulance. This is a problem of values and seems to go to the heart of the claim that for too many police, black lives don't matter. The second is, quote, broken windows, end quote, style policing which targets low-level infractions for intensive, invasive, and aggressive enforcement. This theory was first laid out in 1982 by by criminologists James Q. Wilson and George Kelling. They presented existing behavioral research that showed that when a car is left unattended on the street, it is usually left alone. But if just one window of the car is broken, the car is quickly vandalized. The lesson? Failure to indicate care and maintenance will unleash people's latent destructive tendencies. Therefore, if cities want to establish or maintain crime-free neighborhoods, they must take action to ensure that residents feel the pressure to conform to civilized norms of public behavior. The best way to accomplish this is to use police to remind people in subtle and not-so-subtle not ways that disorderly, unruly, and antisocial behavior are unacceptable. When this doesn't happen, people's baser instincts will take hold and predatory behavior will reign. And it returned to a, Hob- a Hobbesian, quote, war of all against all, end quote. The emergence of this theory in 1982 was tied to a larger arc of urban neoconstructive thinking going back to the 1960s. Excuse me. The emergence of this theory in 1982 was tied to a larger arc of urban neoconservative thinking going back to the 1960s. Wilson's former mentor and collaborator, Edward Banfield, a close associate of neoliberal economist Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago, parented many of the ideas that came to make up the new conservative consensus on cities. In his seminal 1970 work, The Unheavenly City, Banfield argues that the poor are trapped in a culture of poverty that makes them largely immune to government assistance. Quote, although he has more leisure than almost anyone, the indifference apathy if one prefers of the lower class person is such that he seldom makes even the simplest repairs to the place that he lives in he is not troubled by dirt or dilapidation and he does not mind the inadequacy of public facilities such as schools parks hospitals and libraries indeed where such things exist he may destroy them by carelessness or even by vandalism unlike banfield who in many ways championed the abandonment of cities Wilson decried the decline of urban areas. Along with writers like Fred Siegel, Wilson pointed at the twin threats of failed liberal leadership and the supposed moral failings of African-Americans. All three of them argued that liberals had unwittingly unleashed urban chaos by undermining the former social control mechanisms that made city living possible. By supporting the more radical demands of the later urban expressions of the civil rights movement, they have so weakened the police, teachers, and other government forces of behavioral regulation that chaos came to reign. Wilson, following Banfield, believed strongly that there were profound limits on what government could do to help the poor. Financial investment in them would be squandered. New services would go unused or be destroyed. They would continue in their slothful and destructive ways. 
Since the root of the problem was either an essentially moral and cultural failure or a lack of external controls to regulate inherently destructive human urges, the solution had to take the form of punitive social control mechanisms to restore order and neighborhood stability. Wilson's views were informed by a borderline racism that emerged as a mix of biological and cultural explanations for the, quote, inferiority, end quote, of poor blacks. Wilson co-authored the book Crime and Human Nature with Richard Hernstein, which argued that there were important biological determinants of criminality. While race was not one of the core determinants, language about IQ and body type opened the door to a kind of sociobiology that led Hernstein to co-author the openly racist The Bell Curve with Charles Murray, who was also a close associate of Wilson. What was needed to stem this tide of declining civility, they argued, was to empower the police to not just fight crime, but to become agents of moral authority on the streets. The new role for the police was to intervene in the quotidian, in the quotidian disorders of urban life that contributed to the sense that, quote, anything goes, end quote. The broken windows theory magically reverses the well-understood casual relationship between crime and poverty arguing that poverty and social disorganization are the result, not the cause, of crime, and that the disorderly behavior of the growing, quote, underclass, end quote, threatens to destroy the very fabric of cities. Broken windows policing is at root a deeply conservative attempt to shift the burden of responsibility for declining living conditions onto the poor themselves and to argue that the solution to all social ills is increasingly aggressive, invasive and restrictive forms of policing that involve more arrest, more harassment and ultimately more violence. As inequality continues to increase so will homelessness and public disorder. And as long as people continue to embrace the use of police to manage disorder, we will see a continual increase in the scope of police power and authority at the expense of human and civil rights. Uh, now, I want to take a moment there to uh, have a dialogue about the things that were just mentioned, which was uh, a, a, a lot that was just uh, spoken about there. Uh, and before, and I just want to, they're about to sort of slowly pivot into a, a new uh some more subjects in this conversation. So uh, let's let's uh, speak on broken windows policing, which is uh, with all of those the all of those theories that were just uh, spoken of fall under the broken window style policing. Uh, and so one of the first things that I would like to uh, uh, state is that uh, it is erroneous for people to believe uh, that. It's erroneous for people to believe that. uh Poverty is an effect of uh, of uh, crime. Essentially, that is what they're being. That's what they're saying. They're saying that the reason that people are in poverty or that these communities were impoverished uh, was because of the crime that was co uh, being committed. Uh, and, and again, that's what the broken windows theory essentially is saying: is that uh, if you leave a car by itself unattended in a, a community. Uh, it will be it will be fine if it's no damage to it. But if it is a damage to it, which, you know, implies that somebody has committed uh, vandalism or the crime of vandalism or somebody has vandalized it, uh, then that will lead to more people vandalizing it uh, as opposed to uh, looking deeper because this will be the deeper version of that uh uh, metaphor example being given uh, and stating that, well, the reason that uh, if you have 10 people walking by a car that has a busted open window and these 10 people, none of them have uh, 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 have not been adequately educated. Uh, none of them have been uh, uh, 
equally given opportunities to employment. Uh, they are they have not been uh, ingratiated into the society. And so they feel marginalized and they feel as if they don't have opportunities and they have not been properly educated and informed about the potential that they have as individuals or even as a collective, as a community and the things that they could ascribe, uh, ascribe to or achieve. Uh, and so they feel a sense of desperation, uh, and that car with the broken window, uh, uh, presents them an opportunity to alleviate that desperation in some sense uh, by seeing if they have if it's money inside of there seeing if it's food inside of there something to drink inside of there something that maybe they can sell inside of there uh, that will present them with uh, opportunities which the community that they are uh, in uh, do does not readily present them with uh, I don't believe that and because the same thing if you were to extrapolate that out to a community with more resources a community with more resources could have a, a, a million dollar car sitting on the side of the street the windows could all be down the keys could be running in the car and if the people in that community feel as if the risk of stealing it does not outweigh the reward of not stealing it if the people in the community feel as if they have uh, a car that's just like it at home where their dad can go and buy them that car so or can get them whatever's inside the car they don't feel the need to uh, try to steal the car or vandalize the car uh, and again that is why we have to and that's something but when you understand when you're empathizing with the human condition that's something that you understand these people who wrote this did not empathize uh with the human condition uh and so that was that's sort of my first thought about the broken windows the first concept this, this concept of broken windows theory policing uh i'm going to pass it to Kay here in a moment as well to uh, have some of his thoughts uh but i would also just like to point out that this ma manner of policing or this method of policing is why uh inner com inner city communities are over policed at the manner in which they're over policed it's the reason why they uh, stop people who look suspicious or stop uh, uh people who are on the corner these are all things that are uh feed into the broken window style of policing and so a lot of the uh uh over policing of of, of inner city communities and communities uh, poor communities uh uh originate from this uh, concept of broken windows uh, policing. Uh, and then one of the other things I want to say is the uh, idea that, and this is a lot of things, this is a, a, a concept that's presented a lot, this idea that uh, these issues of crime originate in the home or originate uh, with their with parents or culture uh, is inherently racist. Uh, and it's inherently racist because it, it does the job of, of, uh, Moving the onus from the individual, moving the onus from the institution to the individual uh, and the onus is on these institutions. Uh, and I think that we have to not allow people to uh, to do that. And I want to pass it to Kay here because we're uh, this is a we're uh, nearing on our uh, hour mark. So I'm going to pass it to Kay. What's some of your thoughts on uh, what it is that we just read as far as broken uh, windows policing, as far as. Uh, the theory that these issues start in the uh, home and the community as opposed to these institutions. Uh, and uh, go ahead. Yeah, that's basically. Uh, I mean, uh, in regards to just the, the level of. Well, let me let me back up and say it this way. I heard someone say it best this way. They said. We live in an age now where a racist is offended by being called a racist. And I thought that, that, that was so, so true. They said, we live in a time now where a person feels comfortable in the level of racism that, that, that exists 
to acknowledge it, embrace it, but to be called it is offensive. But yet to own it is it, it's it's understood, but to call it what it is is offensive. And the reason why I'm saying that is what I'm my my point to the the broken the broken window syndrome is it is racist. It is definitely built upon a racist ideology in regards to already assuming a, an inferiority of that that said demographic. So instead of actually talking about the simplicity of the situation would be this is the affluent community. What do they have that the other community doesn't have? And we'll make sure that other community has exactly what this community has right. because the officers don't patrol this community. The people uh, don't want them patrolling the community. And, and, and when I think about that, it makes me think about Spring, Cru- Spring Creek. Yeah, that feels for not seeing they feel, and, and I was told that. Uh, I'm just using this, uh, even though we're reading from the book, The End of Policing, uh, a very real scenario in Rockford to make this, to bring this home and make it relevant. The residents of Spring Creek, and I was told this, I, 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 I asked, well, why, is it, why isn't it the scenario where the officers are parked or posted up along Spring Creek in some of these parking lots? Don't the people in that community feel safer? And the person that I had this conversation with said, it is literally the exact opposite. These, some of these mansions, because there's mansions over there, he said, they will lobby to say you you're 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 patrolling in our community too much because you're sending the wrong message. I moved here so that we wouldn't have to see you here unless we called you. And this is what the person told me that the residents, the residents of Spring Creek, were felt more comfortable to say, "I'd rather be not seeing you." Makes me feel that my community is safe. And that the only time I want to see you is if I call for you to show up, which flies in the face of this broken window syndrome where you see them lobbying for more money and bigger budgets and more officers. And we got to get tougher, tougher on the crime. But yet there's no money being put in the education system. There's no money being put in the infrastructure of the community. There's no money being put into the residents directly. To fix, to fix the, the issue that is the racism, right. that's 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 stagnating the entire community, to cause the crime. Right. That the, the the crime is not <laughs> that 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 it's almost as if it's being said that black people are genetically predisposed to crime, to blight, right. to. Uh, this other this other bizarre twist where it, the assumptiveness of laziness. Well, why why is this house falling apart? Why isn't he fixing that? Well, did he get a grant to fix it? Did did the city get involved to assist him in any way? Did the city get involved on on his block in his city in his area to assist him with taxpayer money instead of instead of which is which is odd instead of taking the taxpayer money knowing that there there are taxpayers everywhere but deliberately taking the taxpayer money that's even coming from the black community or or minority community 
that that they're getting all this toughness on crime and the police and more more taxpayer money being put into those resources. Right. And then somehow scapegoating the, the, the victim, victimizing the victim to justify even more money and more money being spent, but never discussing the true issue of the education, the, the real estate, the property value, uh, to build the community. Right. So allowing the community to stagnate and having the very real ability to allocate the funding to to on a holistic level to to strengthen that community, it's zapping the resources and using those same taxpayer dollars to beat that community down. Right. Okay, let's uh let's hop back in here at the bottom of page seven, uh, the end of policing. The order to arrest Eric Garner came from the very top echelons of the police department in response to complaints from local merchants about illegal cigarette sales. Treating this as a crime requiring the deployment of a special plainclothes unit, two sergeants, and uniform backup seems excessive and pointless. Garner had experienced over a dozen previous police contacts in similar circumstances, including stints in jail. This had done nothing to change his behavior or improve his or the community's circumstances. No amount of procedural training will solve this fundamental flaw in public policy. And again, uh, that is one of the reasons why it can't simply be uh, this idea of police reform or this idea of, in this specific situation, retraining uh, to make arrest uh uh, without using the same type of force, uh, because the point of the of the issue is that these officers that were being deployed to interact with Eric Garner, uh, for one, were being deployed uh, based off of uh, racist connotations. And for two, they were being deployed to deal with the situation that was an effect and not a cause. And so no matter what they did in the situation, it was not going to rid people of selling uh, loose cigarettes or selling illegal cigarettes. Uh, and so so, again, they were not making the community safer or making the community better or making the society safer or more humane. This was simply uh, uh, a cog in the system. This was simply just Eric Garner was not a human being. He was just a number. Uh, and that is what and that is the same when we start speaking about uh, black lives not mattering. That is what black people are speaking about, is that uh, the dehumanizing of these situations that they are in. Uh, but let's continue. And then we uh, get to a stopping point. Mm. Many advocates also call for cultural sensitivity trainings designed to reduce racial and ethnic bias. A lot of this training is based on the idea that most people have at least some unexamined stereotypes and biases that they are not consciously aware of, but that influence their behavior. Controlled experiments consistently show that people are quicker and more likely to shoot at a black target than a white one in simulations. Trainings such as, quote, fair and impartial policing, end quote, use role playing and simulations to help officers see and consciously adjust for these biases. Diversity and multicultural training is not a new idea, nor is it terribly effective. Most officers have already been through some form of diversity training and tend to describe it as politically motivated, feel good programming divorced from the realities of street policing. Researchers have found no impact on problems like racial disparities in traffic stops or marijuana arrest. Both implicit and explicit bias remain, even after targeted and intensive training. This is not necessarily because officers remain committed to their racial biases, though this can be true, but because institutional pressures remain intact. 
Uh, and so I think that uh, as we get to that portion right there, that speaks on the uh, reason why there must be an onus put on the institution of policing to be ch to. Uh, that is why there must be an onus put on the institution of policing uh, to be altered uh, in the institution that is policing to be uh, altered and changed and for us to find new institutions uh, and new ways to deal with these uh, 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 societal issues as opposed to putting the onus on the individual police officer and trying to ask an individual police officer uh, to uh, overcome the system of policing which exists or overcome the institution of policing which exists. And the institution of policing says that black lives are valued less. The institution of policing says that you over police black communities uh, the institution of policing says that uh, black people are uh, more likely to be criminals uh, and, and so we have to do the work of of adjusting the institution of changing this institution and stop trying to put it on the individual because that is just a uh, a repetitive cycle that will get us to no change uh, and and so we're we're getting ready to we'll uh, we'll end this right here uh, this was this flow pretty well uh, it's gonna take a long time to get through this book, though. Uh, but that's but that's okay. We uh, one of these nights we'll just knock out a, a bunch of them, and uh, one of these days we'll knock out a bunch of them, and we'll just uh, slowly upload them. But I just want Kay to uh, to speak on the institutional, uh, the institution of policing, and why we must focus on the institution of policing as opposed to the individual. And uh, we got about uh, the next four minutes until we get to fifty-seven minutes, thirty seconds. The floor is yours, Kay. I think the the institution in itself is a response. It, it is a social response to white supremacy, because when you look at the foundational beginnings of policing, it was slave patrol. This is undeniable. It was slave patrol. So you're looking at to uphold and continue white supremacist ideology in America to to control a, a, a populace that had been freed but not only just a populace the num number one populace in America that had the highest level of understanding and knowledge of ag agriculture in the entire nation so you weren't dealing with lazy people. You weren't dealing with uneducated people. You were dealing with people that knew how to till crops, when to pick, when to plant. They knew this. This was their life. So the, 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 the whole concept of the ignorance of, of black people and the, the unlearnedness or the, the savagery, is all, it's, it's all a facade. But when you look at the organic nature of the result of freedom being the slave patrol. We weren't called lazy until we were freed. Once the slave patrol was established, that was the foundational beginnings of the police force in America. Now, mind you, the slave patrol wasn't created to monitor or incarcerate other white people. It had a very definite origin its origin was to suppress and oppress and terrorize the black populace 
So at at no time is is it ever an issue to factor in, well, so and so's great great grandfather was a pastor of a church, but he was on a slave patrol. His personal <laughs> demeanor or character ser- serves nothing in the grand scheme of what he is a part of. So the reform is needed because for someone to attempt to to highlight a person's nature as if it's separate from the position that he's in, his nature doesn't supersede the position. The position will always supersede and will always supersede the man because if that was not so and if that was not the case, back to blue as a, as as a response to the support of officers it's not supporting their humanity it's supporting the institution that they that they are a part of right. it has nothing to do with their humanity right. uh and that's a, actually a very great point i think that's a perfect point to end this on that's a mic drop point uh i'm gonna have to incorporate that into some of my uh arguments as well uh with the back to blue point that you uh got right there uh, so we are nearing uh, our hour mark limit. Uh, this is the first Rockford reading podcast that we have. We're reading the end of policing, which I think is the perfect thing to start off reading. Uh, and we're dissecting it as well. And so let's end this the way we end our lives and our podcast by saying justice for Demetrius Bennett, justice for Carrie Blake, justice for Logan Bell, justice for Jovan Fresco, justice for Mark Barmore, justice for Gino Washington, justice for Philip Johnson, justice for Jasper Banks, justice for Suzette Babbler, uh, justice for Faustin Guaitigo, justice for Shannon Graves, justice for Lil Mike Justice for Mikey Guzman, justice for Eddie, justice for Eddie Patterson, and justice for Joseph McCormick. We outside. In the policing, go get that, uh, get that on Audible or go to Barnes and Nobles, Borders, wherever you can get books at. It's a great book by Alex Vitale. Uh, me and Kay will be back very soon for another segment.